Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1974, just months after the Watergate scandal ended with Richard Nixon's resignation, another man who, for decades, had also helped shape America's place in the world was quietly dismissed from his job. William Colby, who was then the head of the CIA, fired spy master James Jesus Angleton. Colby made the decision after a front-page expose in the New York Times revealed that Angleton was running a massive domestic spying program. The CIA was spying on 10,000 Americans involved in the anti-war movement and other dissident groups. Colby had been trying to get rid of Angleton for years, but Angleton was a bit of a legend. He was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA, and for better or for worse, he was one of the agency's founding fathers. Journalists who were hoping to be the next Woodward and Bernstein were all over this story. They wanted to know why. The buzz around Angleton's firing prompted the formation of a special Senate committee headed up by Idaho Senator Frank Church. And for the first time in the CIA's history, their dirty laundry was about to be exposed. The Church Committee published its final report in April of 1976. It revealed a trove of secret abuses at the hands of the CIA, NSA, FBI, and the IRS. 
Before and after the Cold War, these agencies were involved in global assassination conspiracies, infiltrating news programs, and conducting mind control experiments through programs like MKUltra. The committee's revelations shocked Americans. We'll get into all of that over the next few episodes, but for now, what's important to understand is that in the 1960s, James Jesus Angleton had control over a network of spies, informants, and double agents that reached into the farthest corners of the globe. And the events that would be the cause of his dismissal were just getting underway. This is Who Killed JFK? 60 years later, what can we uncover about the greatest murder mystery in American history? And why does it still matter today? I'm your host, Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to the counterintelligence world of James Jesus Angleton, a world he referred to as the wilderness of mirrors. The term wilderness of mirrors points to the tactic of deception and disinformation that both the CIA and the KGB used against each other during the Cold War. It's a world where it's virtually impossible to tell what is reality and what is merely a reflection of reality. And our journey into the wilderness starts with Lee Harvey Oswald. So let's recap. Oswald was a disenchanted young man who found himself in a psychological study run by a doctor with connections to the CIA. At age 17, he enlisted in the Marines and was shipped to Japan, where he received a security clearance to work as a radar operator on U-2 spy planes. Upon returning to the United States, he spent time at a base in California and another base in Nags Head, North Carolina, which focused on special operations. Then, after learning Russian, he defected to the Soviet Union. Two years later, he returned to the United States with his Russian wife and baby and was welcomed back with open arms. He was never questioned. Why? Well, Oswald didn't actually renounce his U.S. citizenship when he was in Russia, even though he tried at the embassy. So maybe they didn't take him all that seriously. Maybe they saw him and thought, "Eh, that guy, you know, he's all bark and no bite. There's this philosophical theory, I know you know, called Occam's Razor, right, that says the simplest answer is often the correct one. So if you apply that here, what if he's just a communist sympathizer? What if he just defected? He just came back to the U.S. and sort of slipped under the radar. It's possible. But don't forget, we are at the height of the Cold War. The fear of nuclear annihilation is hanging over our heads. Now, if you are willing to enter that wilderness of mirrors with me, by the time we exit, I think things will become clear. But I have to warn you, before things become clear, they will become confusing. And in fact, confusion is the point. So why don't we try to embrace the confusion and step into the wilderness of mirrors? During World War II, America had an intelligence gathering agency called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. The information that they were able to gather helped us win the war. The OSS was officially disbanded in 1945, but certain factions of their work continued. America's biggest enemy at the time was the Soviet Union, and for years they had been honing their skills of covert intelligence operations. 
So, in an effort to play catch-up, the OSS was revamped into a full-blown intelligence-gathering agency in 1947. It was called the CIA. In the wake of its creation, President Harry Truman drafted Directive 10-2, which was a top-secret memo that gave the CIA the green light to engage in different forms of warfare, including propaganda, sabotage, and deadly covert operations against anyone it deemed, quote, hostile to the United States. Think of the uh, 10-2 memo as uh, marching orders into the dark arts of spycraft. And to protect the president, the CIA developed a practice called plausible deniability. If the president wasn't told about a particular secret plan, then he could plausibly deny having anything to do with it. Plausible deniability empowered the CIA to act without presidential approval. They would carry out missions with no awareness outside the agency. Accountability was intentionally clouded. Soledad, could you read this for me? The better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted. I did things that, in looking back on my life, I regret. But I was part of it, and I loved being in it. That is a quote from James Angleton. Now, if you visualize a creepy secret agent from the 50s and 60s, you will see Angleton. I can confirm that. Pictures of him show a lanky guy with thick glasses, hollow cheekbones, and translucent-looking skin. Angleton could do virtually anything he wanted under the name of protecting America. He was the chief of counterintelligence, so he was in charge of defending the CIA. But that position required him, enabled him to do anything. And so he was, there was no check on his power whatsoever. That's our old friend Jefferson Morley, creator of JFKFacts.org. Morley wrote the book on Angleton called The Ghost. Why do you call the book The Ghost? Because he was this invisible presence in the U.S. government that nobody could see. I mean, I think President Kennedy knew who Jim Angleton was, but not many people in the U.S. government knew what Angleton did. Describe him. He was very charismatic intellectually. He had been an English major at Yale with a literary bent. He was known as the poet spy. His friend, the poet E.E. E. Cummings, said the following about Angleton, quote, what a miracle of momentous complexity is the poet. He was the spy as intellectual. He was a very creative thinker. People who knew him in his prime were very impressed and regarded him as, as, as really something of a genius. Counterintelligence has been described as organized paranoia. To catch spies, you have to be very suspicious of everybody. He referred to his work as the wilderness of mirrors, a phrase that he borrowed from T.S. Eliot. There was information, disinformation, secret agents, and double agents, anything to deceive the enemy, hide the CIA's tracks, and create confusion. Confusion was his weapon of choice. And that confusion came into play when Oswald returned to the United States. Oswald, his Soviet wife Marina, and their infant child June they land on the docks of Hoboken, New Jersey on June 13, 1962. There, they're met by a man named Spaz Rakin. Rakin was a representative of the Traveler's Aid Society. Now, I want you to take a look at this through the lens of James Angleton. 
Okay. Spa's Raken was not only a representative of the Traveler's Aid Society, he was also an official of the anti-Bolshevik nations, a group with deep ties to U.S. intelligence, a fact that was totally ignored by the Warren Commission. Now understand that the Traveler's Aid Society wasn't there to, to massage Oswald's feet after his long trip. It was an anti-communist organization that had direct ties to the CIA. Oh, so he's pretty much welcomed back by the CIA. Right. And again, if you look at this through Angleton's eyes, Raken is the perfect person to meet Oswald in order to make sure that his re-entry into America goes smoothly. Raken was somebody they could trust and couldn't be tied directly back to them. So Raken helps the Oswalds get through customs and immigration, then sends them on their way to Fort Worth, Texas. In Fort Worth, Oswald meets a man named George de Morenshield. Now, I'm guessing that name doesn't ring any bells. This is the first time you're hearing the name, George de Morenshield. He's key when we consider the movements of Lee Harvey Oswald on his return to the United States. George de Morenshield was a Russian speaker who worked for oil companies looking for petroleum all over the world. That's Jefferson Morley again. And so in 1962, he was living in Dallas, and he heard of this man who had returned from the Soviet Union, Lee Harvey Oswald. So they become good friends. Don't you think it's odd that a wealthy, worldly, erudite, and much older man would become good friends with Lee Harvey Oswald? DeMorenshield told the journalist Edward Epstein, quote, Somebody gave me Lee's address, and one afternoon I drove to Fort Worth about 30 miles from Dallas. DeMorenshield told Epstein that a CIA operative, J. Walton Moore, was the person who gave him the address of Lee Harvey Oswald and suggested that he meet him, that he would be doing the CIA a favor. DeMorenshield told Epstein that J. Walton Moore asked him to find out about Oswald's time in the Soviet Union. And for essentially babysitting Oswald, de Morenschild was awarded a mineral contract from the Haitian government for $300,000. De Morenschild told Epstein that he assumed this was because of the help de Morenschild had given to the CIA. When you think of people who work for the CIA, you think of people who work directly with the agency, but it's not that simple. There are also people who are, for lack of a better term, CIA-adjacent. They're assets, and these assets will do favors for the CIA, and sometimes they expect favors in return. So that would describe George DeMorenshield. Yeah, right, and, and as part of his babysitting duties, DeMorenshield introduces the Oswalds to a friend of his. This is a woman named Ruth Payne, who was supposedly interested in learning Russian. That's convenient. Dick Russell interviewed Ruth Payne in 1976. The way that you first met the Oswalds was at that party, right? It was a private party. What was it about the Oswalds that you liked? I was especially interested in Marina, mm-hmm. and somebody who was native in Russian. And uh, I didn't really talk to her much that evening, but I did get their address and visited them at their apartment in Dallas. It's important to know who Ruth Payne is. Her sister was a CIA operative, although that was hidden and then denied for decades. 
Her father was employed by the United States Agency for International Development. For decades, there's been suspicion that the U.S. Agency for International Development was a Cold War policy tool created in 1961 to implement CIA operations around the world. Ruth Payne's husband and other family members had intelligence connections as well. In 1967, when the district attorney from New Orleans, Jim Garrison, tried a case that questioned the Warren Commission's findings, he tried to get the Payne's tax returns and he was told they were classified. Another little tidbit. Ruth's best friend, Mary Bancroft, was Alan Dulles's mistress. Because of her friendship with the Oswalds, Ruth Payne was a key witness for the Warren Commission. In her testimony, she was asked by Alan Dulles what she suspected Oswald's motive might have been. She said that she always felt that Oswald saw himself as a small person, and that he wanted to be greater and to be noticed. George de Morenschild also testified to the Warren Commission and left out many of the key details that he would share later on in his life, details that may have caused severe damage to the lone gunman case that the Warren Commission was trying to build. And during the time of his testimony, an eyewitness saw de Morenschild having private lunches with Alan Dulles. It's like Alan Dulles is everywhere. Yes. He was controlling the flow of information in and out of the Warren Commission. So it should come as no surprise that the Warren report went out of its way to conclude that the Warren Shield had no connection to the CIA. But three years later in 1967, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison interviewed the Warren Shield and discovered that not only was he connected to the CIA, he was hired by them to look after Oswald. And after talking with Garrison, DeMorenschild started to change his public stance. What's interesting about DeMorenschild is that he testified to the Warren Commission and really was influential in depicting Oswald as a man who could have killed President Kennedy. DeMorenschild came to regret that later in life, and he believed that he was mistaken and that Oswald did not kill the president. DeMornschill wrote about that in his book, which was titled Lee Harvey Oswald as I Knew Him. It's one of the first books written by someone who had a personal relationship with Oswald. After the book was published, DeMornschill started talking to the press. I interviewed George DeMornschill twice in 1976. And I remember he said, of course, we know it was a vast conspiracy. And his wife tried to shut him up. And then he stood up and started walking around the room saying, it's defiling a corpse, it's defiling a corpse. Oswald had nothing to do with it. It was remarkable to see him like this. He was really upset. He was revealing something huge. And I wasn't the only person he said that to. He was talking to Edward Epstein, a journalist who had written about the Kennedy assassination. That's Jefferson Morley again. DeMorin Schilt said that he was quite certain Oswald did not kill the president and that he was indeed what he said he was, a patsy. He also said, quote, I would never have contacted Oswald in a million years if Moore had not sanctioned it. That's J. Walton Moore, his CIA contact. Right. He said he wouldn't have reached out to befriend Oswald unless he was instructed to. Epstein's interview with DeMorin Shield happened 14 years after Kennedy's assassination. And it was the final interview that DeMorin Shield would ever give.
I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's set the stage, because with all of these moving parts, it gets very confusing. Okay, so the first few months of 1963 are very tough for Oswald. So he returns from the Soviet Union. He gets a job, he loses a job, having trouble with his wife. And in April 1963, he leaves Dallas, and he decides to go to New Orleans, where he had grown up. In New Orleans, he gets a job at a place called the Riley Coffee Company which is owned by William Riley, a supporter of CIA efforts against Castro. Documents show us that Riley had a relationship with the CIA for years. So we're seeing the same pattern, the same kind of thing we saw with DeMore and Shield in Dallas. Oswald is secretly introduced to another CIA-connected guy whose Riley Coffee Company is located right next to the local FBI, CIA, Naval Intelligence, and Secret Service offices. And it's here in New Orleans where Oswald is about to get sheep-dipped. Sheep-dipped? What does that mean? Sheep-dipped is a term of art in the intelligence world. That means coding someone to give them CIA operative status. It's a tactic of deception. It gives the appearance that a person is someone other than who he really is. So how would that even work? by using assets of the agency to build a narrative around that person. You're carefully led into a new identity, and it's all documented. 
You yourself may not know where this new identity will lead, but when it's finished, you'll have the bona fides of someone to appear completely legitimate. And the plan for Oswald in New Orleans was to sheep dip him in order to make him look like he was a pro-Castro communist. Couldn't he just be a pro-Castro communist? If you think that, the poet spy has succeeded. The poet spy, if you'll remember, is James Jesus Angleton, head of CIA counterintelligence. And the wilderness of mirrors we're in, it's the world he created. We know Angleton's tactics, employ CIA-adjacent people, assets that have enough distance from the agency that they can deny knowing them, then send these people to look after someone the agency is interested in, pick them up at the airport, help them get a job, to manipulate this person they're interested in without being traced back. To what end? Angleton was obsessed with Cuba. He wanted to take down Castro, and this was not in line with the president's agenda. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you remember, Kennedy realized taking a hard line against Cuba could lead to an all-out nuclear war. So he started back-channel communications with Khrushchev and Castro to find a path to peace. But Angleton didn't see that as an obstacle. He said, and I'm quoting here, It is inconceivable that a secret intelligence arm of the government has to comply with all the overt orders of the government. He thought it completely fair game that the CIA, the secret intelligence arm of the United States, could have their own set of rules and directives. So while Kennedy was trying to forge a path to peace, the CIA was conducting major anti-Castro operations out of New Orleans and Miami. They sent boats to harass Cuban ships. They ran guns to exile groups. They even had training camps where they were helping the exiles prepare to mount another invasion. Bill Harvey, the CIA agent who had been demoted and sent to Rome after the Cuban Missile Crisis, played a big part in all of this. Bill Harvey created and led something called ZR Rifle. This was a CIA program designed to assassinate foreign leaders. It wouldn't be until the 1980s that we learned how the CIA had a hand in overthrowing governments in the 1950s and 60s, including Iran, Chile, the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, the Congo. This often included the assassination of the leader in charge. This is some of the dirty laundry we mentioned earlier. The CIA wanted to use that same force in an attempt to assassinate Fidel Castro, and Bill Harvey was at the head of it. To understand Harvey's stance toward Cuba, read a segment of this 17-page memo that he sent to Dick Helms, who was running covert operations for the CIA at the time. It goes, quote, The assurance of no invasion and no support of invasion will, in effect, constitute giving Castro and his regime a certain degree of sanctuary. His belief was that every day that passed that we didn't try to invade Cuba would make Castro grow stronger. Essentially, he's saying, if you're not trying to kill him, you're emboldening him. And in many people's minds, the one emboldening him the most was President Kennedy. A declassified document reveals that Bill Harvey sent his memo to the head of the CIA in November 1962. Six months later, in May of 1963, Angleton published a 27-page paper of his own on the topic of Cuba. This was just about seven months before the assassination of President Kennedy. 
and within weeks of Oswald's decision to move to New Orleans. Angleton's paper was called Cuban Control and Action Capabilities. And it's important to understand who received this paper. The Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, the intelligence chiefs of the State Department, Army, Navy, and Air Force, and the Justice Department. And guess who didn't receive this paper? The president. Bingo. Angleton didn't send it to the White House, to his National Security Council, or to the president's brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And there's one thing that becomes particularly interesting in hindsight. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee. If you're taking notes, put a big red circle around the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a real organization. They had chapters around the country with hundreds of members. Their goal was to provide grassroots support for Cuba in America. In Angleton's eyes, members of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee were pro-Castro agents in the United States. This is exactly what Angleton spent his career trying to protect America against. And so, in order to better understand the organization and hopefully stop them, he needed information. And Oswald was about to be sent right into the thick of it. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oswald arrived in New Orleans at almost the exact time that Angleton sent out his Cuban paper. 
And one of the first things that Oswald does is form a local chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And guess how many members there were in this chapter? A mm, hundred. You're close. One. Just one. Just Oswald. Nobody else. Oswald's behavior with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is kind of strange. In his time in New Orleans, he doesn't spend any time with people who support Castro. Uh, this is Oswald being sheep-dipped. A narrative is being created around him. And what does Oswald know at this point? Probably very little. I mean, he knows he's connected to an intelligence community for some purpose. Uh, but I would bet anything that if Lee Harvey Oswald were alive today and you asked him that at that moment, what did he think he was part of? I don't think he would even know. After he started his chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, Oswald visited a man named Carlos Bringier who ran an anti-Castro group called the Cuban Student Directorate. Memos have surfaced that show this group was organized and funded by the CIA. What did Oswald want with him? Oswald told Carlos Bringier that he was an ex-Marine who despised communism and was willing to help train Cuban exiles. So wait a minute. Oswald is starting the pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and at the same time, he's offering help in training anti-Castro exiles. Didn't you say the New Orleans branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was funded by the CIA? I did, but remember, so was Carlos Bringuer's student group. And his group was not only funded by the CIA, it was run by George Joannides. Remember him? Joannides was the former CIA agent who sabotaged the investigation led by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. After meeting with Bringier, Oswald goes to a very anti-Castro area of New Orleans and starts handing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. There are photos of this. In, in some of those photos, you can actually see a known CIA operative in the background. Here's a guy who's standing on a street corner in New Orleans, handing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And who is filming that? And why is that even being filmed? If you want the public to know something about something, you have to create some kind of event that would make news. So while handing out these pro-Castro leaflets... Four members of the Cuban student directorate confronted him, grabbed his pamphlets, threw them in the air, started shouting at him. And, you know, it was about to be a fight, and two cops came in and arrested them all. The local radio station, WDSU, jumped all over it. The reporter, a guy named William Kurt Stuckey from WDSU, named the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in his report and named Lee Harvey Oswald. So what would be the implication of that? They're staging this. How else would the public know that Oswald was pro-Castro unless it was picked up by the press? It had to be documented. Oswald was getting sheep-dipped as a pro-Castro agent. And at the same time, the Fair Play for Cuba committee was being made to look weak. Oswald and the Cubans are all arrested. They're taken into the police station. Oswald, the first thing he does is ask for an FBI agent. Why would a leftist a supporter of Fidel Castro, asked to see an FBI agent. Because it was all theater, and Oswald was in the lead role. To this day, the CIA denies their connection to Oswald. Despite everything we know, some of which we've covered so far in this series, they claim to have had very minimal awareness of Oswald and no direct connection. 
In June 2023, Peter Baker of The New York Times published a story revealing new details about the CIA and their relationship with Oswald. The story covered a CIA memo from June of 1962 that summarized the contents of a letter between Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother. This letter was intercepted and read by the CIA when it was originally sent. So right there, we have another piece of documentation of the fact that the CIA was fully aware and tracking Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, apparently the existence of this CIA memo wasn't news. Assassination researchers have known that this memo existed for decades. The news that The New York Times was breaking in their story was about the author of this memo, which strikes me as odd that it was more important to the CIA to hide the identity of the person who wrote the memo than the existence of the memo itself. But now that we have a basic understanding of the wilderness of mirrors and the fact that things in this world are often not what they seem, I wanted to talk to someone that could help me understand what the CIA was up to and the significance of the name that the Times uncovered. So we asked Jefferson Morley to join us once again. So, Jeff, who was the CIA agent who was reading Oswald's mail, and who was he sending these summaries to? Ruben Efron was a CIA analyst and translator. He's worked for the CIA for since 1955. He was in charge of reading the mail of people who were picked by James Angleton. So Angleton had a list of about 200 people whose mail he opened, copied, filed. And Oswald was one of those people, starting from the week he went to the Soviet Union in 1959. So it was known that Mr. Efron's role was to surveil the mail of people that Angleton had on this select list. What is it about this memo that stands out? The Times story showed that not only was the CIA reading Oswald's mail while he was in the Soviet Union. When Oswald comes home, Efron writes a memo which he sends to his boss, which says, Mrs. Edgeter in CI SIG will be interested. CI SIG is the Counterintelligence Special Investigations Group. CI SIG was so secret that almost nobody in the CIA, other than Dulles, Angleton, and the people that worked in SIG, knew it even existed. The fact that Oswald's file is controlled at that highest level of the CIA is extremely noteworthy. So what the Times story shows is that not only were they reading his mail, but after he returned to the United States, they were paying close attention to him. And that they would be the poet's spy. Angleton knew all about Oswald. And if you start to connect the dots, when Angleton needed someone in 1963 to play a role in his efforts to take down Castro, he taps someone he knows, Lee Harvey Oswald. Next episode on Who Killed JFK, we meet Richard Case Nagel, also known as the man who knew too much. By sheer accident, he stumbled on the fact that there was an assassination seriously planned. And then at his preliminary hearing, he says, well, I'm glad you caught me. He says, uh, I really don't want to be in Dallas. And I says, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, you'll know soon enough. Who Killed JFK is hosted by Rob Reiner and me, Soledad O'Brien. 
And our executive producers are Rob Reiner, Michelle Reiner, Matt George, Jason English, David Hoffman, and me, Soledad O'Brien. Our writer is David Hoffman, with research by Dick Russell. Our story editors are Rob Reiner and Julie Pinedo. Our senior producer is Julie Pinedo. Our producers are Tristan Nash, Dick Russell, Michelle Goldfein, and Amari Lee. Our editors are Tristan Nash, Julie Pinedo, and Marcus DeLauro. Our project manager is Carol Klein. Archival audio in this episode, thanks to Dick Russell. Our associate producer is Emilce Quiros. Mixing, mastering, and sound design by Ben LaHoulier. Music by APM. Research and fact-checking by Girl Friday and Emilce Quiros. Business Affairs by Hernan Narea and Jonathan Furman. Consulting producer is Roseanne Gallagini. Recorded in part at CDM Studio and 4th Street Recording Studio. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Production assistance by Rocco Del Prior and Grace Barron. Special thanks to Joe Honig, Rose Arce, and Dan Storper. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Who Killed JFK is a production of Soledad O'Brien Productions and iHeart Podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.